If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The following episode contains difficult subject matter. Please take care while listening. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. This is Crime Story. Every week, a new crime with the storyteller who knows it best. Now we're talking, this is really serious. This isn't a playful, funny, let's have wine conversation anymore. This is about a woman who lost her life. When Carol Fisher met Bob Bierenbaum in the 1980s, he seemed like a catch. He was Jewish, he was a doctor, he spoke five languages. He was a gourmand who loved skiing and a New Yorker who could fly planes. He was every Jewish mother's dream. Well, really, he was any mother's dream. But there was something off about Bob. He was hiding something. A dark and sordid past that Carol and her friends would later fight to expose. More than 30 years after Bob and Carol broke up, Carol shared her story in a podcast called The Girlfriends. Carol Fisher, welcome to Crime Story. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you so much for having me here. It's really a privilege to be here. And it is a congratulations I should give you. It was a real uh, sleeper hit. And I just wanted to say as a fellow podcaster how exciting it is to see this happen. Oh, thank you so much. You know, we have a lot in common except for one thing. I had never even listened to a podcast before. So the fact that this has become so successful is just really uh, a tribute to the team behind the scenes, Anna Sinfeld, who's the producer and her team. Just amazing. Carol, tell me what was going on in your life when you met Bob for the first time. Yeah, you know, I was uh, a single mom living in Las Vegas and um, had my career going and uh, was looking for um, a new boyfriend, right? So, you know, don't we all want to spend our lives with someone and have that fantasy to do so? And and a dear friend of mine, Mindy Shapiro, who is also on the podcast, The Girlfriends, with me, um, she introduced me to Bob. And Mindy said to me really clearly, Kathleen, he looks great on paper, but there's just something about Bob that, I don't know, it's just not right. Um, but I, single and, and looking for a nice Jewish man, I said, I'll go on a date with him. And that's how I ended up dating Bob. And your first date, what was that like? Oh, my gosh. Well, it should have been a warning and a, a big red flag. And when I look back today, I, I see it as a red flag. Um, we had had several phone calls and you know, lots of uh, fun on those phone calls. And Bob certainly um, touted the fact that he spoke five languages and how smart he was. And you know, he was really charming on the phone. So he picked me up and we went to an Indian restaurant. I remember it like it was yesterday. We're sitting in a booth in the back of the restaurant, and we start talking about life and who we are. And I ask him, 
hey, have you ever been married before? You know, I'm, I'm curious because here we are of an age where it's very common to have a past. And he was very uncomfortable and very defensive and very cautious about what he said. And therein lies the uh, red flag. And so I say to Bob, well, what did you do? Did you murder your wife? And with that, he just turns pale. He pauses, kind of gains composure and proceeds to tell me this elaborate story that his wife had gone missing. She had a drug problem. She had depression issues. Maybe she killed herself and that he was accused of murdering her. And that, of course, he was found innocent and he came to Las Vegas for a fresh start. Well, imagine my surprise. Um, And by the way, my denial was like in high gear. So I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that this guy, the Jewish uh, plastic surgeon who has his own plane is perfect. And so I go hook, line and sinker for that story and and believe him. How old are you at this point? Oh, my gosh. I was in my, um, I don't know, like my mid 30s, late 30s. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, you said you didn't listen to any podcasts, which is fair. But I, I produced a podcast called Do You Know Mordecai? And it was a podcast about my friend, one of my very best friends who dated a guy who didn't kill anybody, but who was a, a fraud. Really? Yeah. And we ended up meeting all these other women that he uh, defrauded and uh figured out exactly who he was and the lies he was telling people. And one of the things that I really dove into in my podcast was at a certain point in a woman's life, I think there is something, and, and I included myself in this list of women. I've, I've, I've been a single mother and tried to date. And there is this thing that happens, this denial, as you call it, this idea that there is a loneliness that you carry with you, a sort of a sense that you've taken on everything on your own. And even just to have that person that might not help with the kids, but will be there to sort of just be there when the kids are asleep or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, I think that often lets us ignore the red flags. I agree. And I, I have to tell you, I think women have a lot of pressure on us when we're professional women and we're navigating our personal and and marrying that professional life with it, that we don't feel complete without a man in it. And it's a real issue. It was for me. And I'm certainly hearing from so many women that feel that way. And I mean, he broke up with you. And one of the more fun, interesting parts of the podcast was your response to it. It bothered you, even though I think there was a part of you that sort of knew probably better off. Oh, I was so relieved, yet I was so angry. I'm like, what do you, like, because I should have broke up with him. You know, it shouldn't have been the other way around. So, yeah, that is, that is kind of the comedy, uh, if there's any comedy in this story, which really there is none. But that was the comedy in that part, that chapter of that relationship for six months, that he breaks up with me after just treating me so poorly along the way. Can you dive a little bit deeper into how he treated you? Um, what what did you see that you ignored? You know, Bob had a, a really bad temper. And I'd say that it was never directed at me per se. I never felt like I was in danger. But his reaction to things were always out of proportion with the event. So an example of that is I'm unloading his dishwasher. I break a glass. I drop it, right? It happens. Accidents happen. And his reaction to that was just, he was enraged that I dropped this glass. 
Um, and me having a strong personality that I do, I said to him, like, what's the deal, Bob? You know, where'd you get the glasses? I'll replace it. And he proceeds to tell me how much they cost. And, you know, they were a set. And so I actually threw him some cash and said, here, here's, you know, the replacement for your glass. Go buy one. Not knowing that this was a dangerous man, potentially. Um, but it, it, so it was things like that along the way that he just had a um, a problem with anger and, you know, a problem with controlling people, controlling me, wanting me to behave in a certain way. And there was definite red flags that I ignored. So what happened after the breakup? So Mindy Shapiro, who I love um, dearly, except she's is the one who fixed me up. But she gave me a trigger warning when she fixed me up, right? Looks good on paper, but something's off with Bob. When we debriefed for the first time after Bob broke up with me, um, she said to me, you know, he really should like run for office or I don't understand why he's not more high profile. And I say to Mindy, well, he's got a lot of baggage, you know, he's got some skeletons in his closet and she now is like sitting up straight and all ears. And so Mindy, as I proceed to say, he was accused of murdering his wife. She takes us on full court press as a full investigation. So she starts to go to the library because we don't have, you know, Google back then. And um, she's investigating and she starts to call us affectionately Harriet the Spy Club. That's great. And you guys actually do some real digging, and you find out that Bob actually had a wife, a woman named Gail, who did go missing. How did she and Bob meet? So Gail and Bob apparently met at a party. They were introduced by a friend. Um, They started dating. Gail, uh, very much like me, um, she was in love with love, and she always wanted to have a, a good boyfriend. And it you know, as you get to learn about Gail through the podcast, you know, she had a lot of boyfriends or different boyfriends that were not consistent with what a good Jewish mom wants. So when she met Bob, I think she, like all of us that met Bob, was very excited that he flew a plane and he offered um, a lot of opportunities to have fun in different ways. And so you know, it sounds to me as if she fell for him hook, line, and sinker, like many of us did, and wanted to have fun and enjoy life and, and have a good time with him. That, unfortunately, though, changed pretty dramatically because he did with her what he did with all of us, and that is try to control and manipulate and, and make her behave a certain way. Um, and she was very young when that happened. How old was she? Yeah, she was in her 20s. So she was very impressionable. And, you know, looking back, that could have been any one of us. You know, that could have been me and it could have been any one of the women that dated him. But at that period of time, um, you know, they dated, they got married and things changed rather quickly for her. And she was trying to get out of that relationship. You know, she was trying to leave And, you know, it's interesting to hear about that because what I've learned doing this podcast is that women who are in domestic violence situations, on an average, it takes them about an average of seven times to leave a relationship. That's a lot of time. 
And I don't want to be judgmental of that. I get it today. There's many reasons why women stay. Gail really thought she could get out of there in one piece and take care of this herself. And obviously, she paid a price for that decision. Yeah. And we also know that when they leave, it's the most dangerous time because the anger comes to the surface. So dangerous. So Gail disappears in July of 1985. Yes. And what do people think happened to her? Well, her family, they were convinced that he had done something with her, um, that maybe she was hurt, maybe he had her locked up somewhere, and worst of all, that she um, was no longer alive. And Bob did not take an active role in searching for her which was very interesting to the family and very interesting to the investigators. So uh, they couldn't prove it was him, um, and she went missing. Now, he started dating rather quickly, uh, right after her disappearance. So he wasted no time to move on with his life, which was certainly another red flag. But, you know, he had a lot of reasons why he was able to move on, and uh, it was very, very difficult to prove that he was guilty. What were some of the things that they did to try to find her? So in order to find her, the family had asked Bob to go on some news shows. What do you think happened to your wife? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm worried. They had put up flyers. They were doing searches. They were engaging community. Uh, They really went all out. When I say they, I'm talking about her sister, Gail's sister, Elaine, and family, and the investigators. But Bob never seemed real interested in trying to find his wife. A matter of fact, while he was in another relationship, there was a call in the middle of the night that came in from someone uh, saying, hey, can you come down and, and take a look? We think we may have found Gail. And he said, oh, it's probably not her. You know, I don't need to get up in the middle of the night. Well, y- you know, there, therein lies another red flag. You speak of Gail's sister, Elaine. She did not go somewhere without talking to me. We would fall asleep without hanging up the phone. There's a man named Robert Birenbaum, and he killed her for one very simple reason. And I wish that I knew then what I know now. Everybody who mentions the podcast to me talks about her. She's kind of become the star of this podcast. She's quite a tough person. And has a voice that everybody just loves. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. there's that. Um, but you said that she and her family did not like Bob from the beginning. What were the things that she told you that she didn't like about him? Well, first of all, I agree. I mean, Elaine is just, she's just an amazing, extraordinary woman. And we all should have a sister like Elaine. Uh, you know, she's just, she's just total badass and, and just a great, great woman. Um, you know, she saw early on that Bob had this need to be better than everyone else in the room, that he he was always one-upping people, and that he was taking control of her sister, um, having her dress a certain way, having her behave a certain way. He would feed her. Uh, they were out to dinner, and he was uh, feeding Gail. So just very unusual controlling behavior that really had Elaine feeling uneasy. Um, But like any good sister, you know, you you point out some of your concerns and then you have to be supportive. 
And that's what Elaine did. There was also an incident with Gail's cat, right? My sister calls me hysterical. And she said, you have to come get me in the morning. And like, I wasn't so happy about this marriage. This sounds good to me. I'll come get you in the morning. I go into the city and I drive up to her apartment and she comes out holding her cat. No luggage, no nothing, just the cat. And she is weeping and I'm like, what's up? And she said, Bob tried to kill the cat. And she tells me that she was in the bedroom. She heard the cat making a funny noise. She goes into the bathroom and there Bob is with the cat's head in the toilet, drowning the cat. He was convinced that uh, Gail loved the cat more than, uh, you know, she loved Bob. And that's just crazy making stuff. And Elaine was very, very concerned about Gail. When did the police start to become suspicious of Bob? Right out the gate. There, there was no lack of suspicion. Of, you know, they, they thought he um, had been involved in some capacity because of the way he was behaving. You know, he, he wouldn't totally allow them to come in the apartment to, you know, get fingerprints. He was very controlling of what he was getting involved in. He was, he was just suspicious. And you can really hear it in the podcast. Um, some of the information that the detectives share, um, you know, was really pointing to him being guilty, but they had no way to approve it. And there was no body to be found. So that case um, eventually just fizzled out. And these men were convinced um, that he was guilty and they were getting ready to retire and they opened the case back up. And it was then that they decided to re-examine all the evidence and then to start talking to all of the girlfriends that had dated him. And there were so many of us. So it's a fascinating case about how to revisit and, and open a cold case and how you can collect new evidence. It was just amazing. And all of us girlfriends came together to unite and, you know, uh, right a wrong. Tell me what the theory was of what he actually did to her. So the police theory was that Bob had hurt her and had disposed of the body. Knowing that he was a pilot, knowing that he was a surgeon, they had speculated that he had dismembered her and had gotten rid of the body in a plane. Did you ever find out anything about his upbringing? Do we have any sense of how he became like he did? I met his parents. Um, they were unusual. Um, he had a horrible relationship with his father. I remember that. Um, when I say his parents were unusual, they all just seemed distant from each other. The mom and dad just seemed scared with Bob. It, it, you know, when I look back, and Bob seemed just annoyed with them that he couldn't live up to their expectations. And I'm not sure what those dynamics were all about. But they came to Las Vegas one time while I was dating Bob, and we had all gone out um, to dinner and a show. And I just remember feeling that tension, that it was pretty significant. I also had met Bob's sister and her family, and there also seemed to be the same kind of distance 
Like nobody felt connected, if that makes sense. As if it's almost, I just remember like feeling like everyone's walking on eggshells around Bob. So my guess is that he was not an easy child to raise and that he had some issues and problems that we'll never know about. That's my guess. What information were the police getting from the girlfriends that was helping the case, that was pushing it past the nobody and him not talking? Lots of information, uh, anywhere from his temper um, to me asking, you know, what did you do, kill your wife, um, and his reaction to that. Uh, There was a woman that had um, seen his flight log had been altered. That was a critical piece of evidence that hadn't been looked at. He rented a plane the day she went missing, and uh, he changed that in his flight log. So it was altered, and it really became evident that there were other women, too, that had information, other girlfriends that lived on the East Coast that had information um, about Bob and how he was... um, not this stand-up person, a uh, Jewish physician that spoke five languages that had a plane. You know, that wasn't the image. It was, no, this was a dangerous man who had threatened other people. One of the things that I learned about in your podcast that I'd never heard of before is something called a Tarasov letter. Yes. Can you tell me what that is? Yes. A Tarasov letter is a, a duty to respond um, in writing to warn someone if they're in harm. So if someone is in harm, um, if they're going to harm themselves or someone else is going to harm them, someone like a psychiatrist has a responsibility to warn them. And Gail was warned in a letter that is referred to as a Tarasov letter. And who warned Gail? A psychiatrist that had seen Gail and Bob. Oh, so as like a marriage counselor, they went together. Exactly, exactly. And I believe Bob may have gone by himself too. And that was not the first person that had warned that he was dangerous. Not the first therapist. No, no. But let's just talk about this psychiatrist for a minute. He was convinced that Gail was in harm, that if she stayed with him, her life was in jeopardy. And so he warned her. He warned her not just verbally, but in writing also. What did that letter say? I mean, I'm shocked by this. Yeah. 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 It basically said that your life is in jeopardy and you need to really consider terminating that relationship and getting away from him as soon as possible. Some form of that. And do we have any sense of how she responded or did anybody in her family know that existed? Her family, she talked about the fact she had been warned and Gail started to look for options where she was going to move to. So she started to transition in her mind out of that marriage, but she was doing it in her way, not in the way that, you know, we wish she would have, right? I know Elaine wished she would have left right away, um, but Gail really wanted to make sure that there was some significant closure. She also wanted Bob to take responsibility for her education and um, to pay for her education. And uh, yeah, in retrospect, obviously that was a big mistake.
For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. So this this all eventually comes to a head. He is arrested and there is a trial. Tonight, a doctor under arrest. He's charged with killing his wife. What was your role in the trial? I had to testify, and I had to testify about our first date. I had to testify about the breaking of the glass. I had to confirm that he was meticulous with his flight log, um, talk about his temper, and talk about you know the story he told me about his wife. Um, and he told all of us you know, similar yet uh, sometimes different stories about the past, which tripped him up in trial. Did you want to testify? How did that feel? Oh, no, I did not want to testify. I wanted to pretend none of this happened to me and that, um, you know, those six months, I just wanted them to be a blur in my memory bank. Uh, No, I was subpoenaed to testify uh, and I was scared to death to testify. What was it like to see him? It was horrible. It was just horrible. And I remember You know, it was like something in a TV show with that old New York courtroom and the creaky floors and the wooden paneled walls. And it was just overwhelming for me. Um, And when I got up to do the oath of, you know, I'll tell the truth, uh, nothing but the truth, um, Bob was staring at me and kind of gave me this really bizarre smirk um, that I still to this day don't know what that, I you know, I have no idea what that meant. If it was hello or I'm going to get out of this or, you know, you you can't get me. I don't know what he meant, but it haunts me to this day. And uh, Elaine, uh, Gail's sister, also testified. Did you see her testify? I never did see her testify. I got out of there as as quick as I could. Um, I wanted no part of that. I did see Elaine, though, when I testified uh, when I was there that day in New York. We didn't meet. We weren't allowed to talk. But... Uh, Someone had pointed her out, and she was kind of in a distant room that I was in um, around the corner, and and I noticed her. And you could just see that she had a force like no other. And how important was her testimony? I think that um, Bob would still be free if it wasn't for Elaine. Elaine was not going to rest until this man was proven guilty. And that was... I mean, very painful years and years and years of her trying to get attention to the fact that he was guilty. This was not an an easy lift. It was a hard lift for her. Do you know if the prosecution felt confident that they could win? I mean, they still did not have Gail's body. I think they felt fairly confident because there was someone who claimed to be a witness um, that had seen Gail. Although... What ended up happening is that witness testified and he was very confused and ended up, you know, talking about a woman that didn't even look like Gail. So his testimony was a little contradictory. I always wondered, and this is just my theory, if maybe the family paid him, um, but he was no longer alive at the time of the podcast because I asked that we investigate that, um, but he was no longer alive.
So did Bob ever actually admit to killing Gail? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually what happened. Um, he admitted a couple years ago. So in New York, uh, there's a, an interesting law. And that is if, you, if, you're, if you're found guilty, you must admit your guilt in order to be eligible for parole. So Bob, a couple years ago, admits his guilt. And you may recall and, uh, that we read those transcripts during the podcast. So Carol, who are you going to be? So I'm the commissioner. Great. I get to be Bob. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, you get to be Bob. How did you attack her, sir? I strangled her. After you strangled Which her, what happened, sir? was uh, just horrible. In any case, Bob admits that he had strangled her, that he then went out for a walk, came back to the apartment, put her in a duffel bag, uh, and took her out the back through the garage, rented an airplane, and put the duffel bag with her body in it into the plane, and then pushed her out over the Atlantic Ocean. He, today denies dismembering her, but he does admit to throwing her out of a plane. I went flying, I opened the door, and then took her body out of the airplane over the ocean. By the way, got back on the ground and went to a birthday party. You know, just really, really a sick man. Cold. Yeah. You know, I had um, always figured that in my mind, because my denial is so strong, that, yeah, he murdered her, but it was probably just this horrible accident. Now, that doesn't make it right, right? I mean, murder is murder, but I wanted to soften it in my mind. So reading that transcript was a real eye-opener for me, because in my mind, my story that I told myself for many years is that he strangled her, or that he didn't strangle her, that they got into an argument, he pushed her, she hit her head, and now she died. Um, but, you know, to, to think of strangling someone in that capacity and, and uh, it, it just it's horrible. It's horrible. And can we talk about the um, transcripts that you guys do go through and read uh, in the podcast? It's pretty powerful. Can you talk a little bit about what was the most impactful for you? It was like a gut punch um, that I've never quite felt before. And it continues to haunt me. His Admission of guilt was done in such a way that he's trying to ask everyone to feel sorry for him. You know, I was overworked. You know, I was stressed. What happened that led to her death, sir? At the time, I was working about 100 hours a week. And at my secondary job, I was working about another 20 hours a week. I wasn't in my right mind. Well, There was never an apology to the family. There was never this sincere admission of, hey, I did something horrible and it was wrong. Um, It was just in true narcissistic fashion that he admitted his guilt. I mean, it's like he was a victim of circumstance. Like he was the victim. And, uh, you know, just for the record, he is no victim. He's a dangerous man. And he should stay in prison the rest of his life. What was he convicted of? He was convicted of murder. He had a 20-year minimum sentence. And um, I think we're at year 22 or 23 that he's been in. And how old is he now? Uh, Well, he's probably like 60. I don't know. I'm 65. So he's probably about four years older. Oh, so he's not that old. 
And so you said he's up for parole. Do you think he'll get it or release, I guess? Well, I certainly hope not. I think he's a dangerous man. I think he could hurt someone again. And I really hope that the girlfriends, all of us coming together, that created justice for Gail will continue to create justice that he stays behind bars for the rest of his life. I feel horrible for his daughter. He has a daughter. I know he has another ex-wife. I feel horrible for them, but I feel much safer for Elaine um, and all the women that had to testify, including myself. I feel much safer that he's behind bars. So you mentioned that this was your first podcast. How how did you feel about being the voice of the story? Uh, I was very nervous. I I learned to to get comfortable with it. Um, I didn't understand what the gravity was of the of where this podcast would lead to. So it it was um, wonderful. It was a privilege to do it. And then a couple weeks before it was released, Anna. Uh, the producer sent me an email saying millions of people are going to be listening to this podcast. Everyone's so excited about it. And it was then, Kathleen, that I went into pure panic mode for about a week. And some of my best girlfriends were very supportive of me because, you know, here I am, I'm just doing this podcast. Like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. And of course, when I hear millions of people are going to hear it, um, I realized that I have just exposed everything about myself uh, that, you know, it felt very um, vulnerable to me. But on the other side of that, it's been um, an amazing experience. And every day women reach out to me that I don't know and they share their story. And it's amazing to hear the stories of women that are um, have survived abuse or friends of, of uh, women that are being abused, you know, what one in four women have experienced domestic violence in their life. They've had some form of that. And those numbers are, are astounding to me. And when I now talk out loud about this, which I, you know, didn't talk out loud about this, obviously, for many, many years, but professional women like you and, and me are coming to me saying, this happened to me too. One of my best friends said to me, you know, when I was in college, I got thrown out of a car. Can you imagine a moving car? This, you know, man throws her out. But we weren't talking about this out loud and still really aren't. So I'm really proud of the work through the girlfriends because we're giving Gail and other women a voice. And we've created this platform to say, it's okay to talk about this. We need to talk about this. We need to stay together and, and understand that we're not alone. And Gail's life should be remembered for all the good that she did, not for staying in a domestic violent relationship. You know, this was a woman who was passionate about helping other people. She was going to school to become a psychologist. And so her legacy um, continues on and on and on. And I know Elaine's very proud of that. On that note, Carol, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you and congratulations again on the work. It's really spectacular. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime Story from CBC Podcasts. 
You can get our next episode a week early on CBC Podcasts' YouTube channel or by subscribing to CBC Podcasts' Apple True Crime channel. Next week, I'll be talking to Headley Thomas about his groundbreaking podcast, The Teacher's Pet. It was a story of murder, of exploitation of a schoolgirl, of failure of a criminal justice system, of another era. In addition to early access, subscribers to our True Crime channel also listen ad-free. Crime Story is written and hosted by me. Our producers are Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound design by Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our YouTube producer is John Lee. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is CBC Podcast Senior Manager and Arf Narani is the Director of CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.